Um, if you have a Bible, like I said, go ahead and uh, open it up to Exodus chapter 5. There's only one slide this morning. It's that one, so it should be pretty easy. Um, <laughs> it's no indication of the length of the sermon, if it makes you feel any better. Um, we are in Exodus. We're going to be looking at chapters 5 and 6 this morning. We have been looking at uh, God's journey with his people and this series that we're teaching through is called A Holy God and Holy People, because what we're seeing is that what God wants to do through his people, the Israelites, is show the world who he is, that he is a holy God and what all that that means, and that he's going to do it through a group of people, a nation that he has created against all odds, and that he is now uh, sustaining, and that he is going to now begin to deliver out of the hands of the people who have enslaved them, their oppressors. Uh, what we're going to see this morning is the first real tangible step, especially if you're the Pharaoh, um, in seeing God begin to do this as Moses comes and talks with Pharaoh. We're going to read through a good portion of Scripture this morning, and we're going to talk a little bit about what it looks like specifically when God begins to work in a situation, when he begins to do something, and yet things don't immediately get better. They seem to even get worse before they get better. So open up your Bible to Exodus chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And we're going to first read through the first five verses here of Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is after uh, Moses um, has come out of the wilderness. He and Aaron, his brother, have been reunited. Uh, God has given Moses a mission, and God's actually told him what's going to happen. He said, here's actually what's going to happen just so that you can be prepared uh, for the fact that this is not going to be an incredibly smooth road. There's going to be some bumps along the way. So know that they're coming and know that I know about them. And then Moses and Aaron, at the end of the last chapter that we were in last week, will go to the Israelites themselves and they will say to them, they will show them signs and prove to them that this is someone that God has sent. We're about to, God has heard your prayers. He has heard your cries from slavery. He is about to save you and redeem you. So starting in chapter 5 of verse 1, Verse 1 of chapter 5 in Exodus, it says this. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. We'll stop right there for a second to hear what Pharaoh's response is and what exactly it is that Moses is asking him. Now, Moses and Aaron have gone to him and they've said, please let our people go into the wilderness, three days journey to worship God, to offer sacrifices to him so that they can still be doing what he wants them to do. They can be in his favor. 
And uh, now many of us, uh, that's kind of a surprise to read that, right? To, to think, wait, I thought that he was supposed to go and tell the Pharaoh that they wanted, God wanted him to let his people go. Did God, did God change his mind? Did he decide, no, I'm good with just three days and a, and a worship service in, a, in the desert, and then we'll be good, and they can go back into slavery. No, because you see, what we begin to see happen here, and this is incredibly important, is that God is building to something. And he's actually orchestrating circumstances and events, and even in, in this, like an inv- it's like an incredibly... Uh, well, obviously well thought out and well planned out way of going about freeing the Israelites from Egypt. Because what, what will happen is this. They're going to ask for just the ability to go and journey for three days and go to offer food sacrifice to idols. And Pharaoh will say, no, get back to your work. As he's just said, you're lazy. Why are you even asking for this? As any slave master would do when the slaves begin to ask for grace and for freedom and for a little bit of autonomy, he fights back as soon as he can. Eventually, we know, if you know the end of the story, that he will let them go. He will let them leave. But it will say, when we get to that part, that when, it becomes a, when he becomes aware of the fact that they have fled, not that they just left for a couple days, but that they have fled because they kind of took a lot more stuff than you would take if you're leaving for three days. You know, it's like if someone says, I'm leaving for a night, and then they take all their stuff, you go... Uh, wait a second, right? And so he, he, is, he is infuriated and he goes out after them and that God will draw Pharaoh out after them in his rage and his fury so that God can show in a decisive, divine, supernatural way, not through a battle or a war, something involving people, but God can finally show what justice looks like, what judgment looks like upon this Pharaoh who, as we are beginning to see right here, will make no qualms about it. I am this God's enemy, this God is my enemy. And if there's any lesson in Exodus, I mean, if you get any lesson from Exodus, at least get the lesson that Pharaoh should get, which is do not make yourself God's enemy. You will lose. We saw it in the very beginning as the Pharaoh began to try to do things, keep the Israelites from becoming a big group of people. He lost, he lost, he lost. It was infuriating how much he would lose. It was very clear. You can do whatever you want. You can try and think of anything that you want. And these pharaohs, there's more than one pharaoh involved at this point now. We're on to our next pharaoh who has recognized, he says, that the Israelites have become a big group of people. So let's use them. Let's use them for labor. Let's use them for the benefit of Egypt. And no, I don't want to give them up and I don't want to lose them to anyone, even if just for a couple of days. What he says is he says, I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. This is important because this is why Exodus exists. This is why Israel exists. Because people would say, I do not know the Lord. I do not know this Lord. What God desires to do through his people is make himself known. Not just information about him, Not just a person going around saying, oh, here's what this God says you should do, and here are the rules that you have to follow. But to really know who this God is, to really know this God relationally, this is why we're seeing all of these things happen. So the Pharaoh says, flat out, I don't know who this Lord is, and we know that God is intending to show them just who he is. That what is happening in Exodus, God is using to show Pharaoh who he is, to show the Egyptians who he is, and more importantly, to show the Israelites themselves who he is. He's been showing Moses who he is. He showed him in a variety of ways, and he's going to continue to do so. And there's a big difference 
between even the ways of knowing God. There's knowing about God, which is kind of where it starts. And then there's knowing God, right? There's the relational knowing of knowing God. Now, what God wants for his people, the Israelites, is for them to actually know him closely and intimately. And what he's showing the Egyptians is to even just simply know about him, about his might and about how big he is, about how powerful he is, and about the fact that he's the creator of everything. People have often said for so many years that, uh, that what we actually know to be true about God is sort of everything to us. The most important aspect of any person's life, really, whether they realize it or not, is what they think of God, who they think God is, what they think that means for them in any way. Maybe you know he's powerful, but you don't know if he's good. Maybe you think he doesn't care about you or your life, and that's a good thing. Or that's an okay thing. Maybe you think that he doesn't care about you, and that's an awful thing. Maybe you think uh, he does care about you, but he doesn't care about what you do or how you live. But what you think about God means everything. It matters for everything. There's a movie that I saw a few years ago, um, and it was about a young woman who was in a car accident, and she blacked out in the car accident. And when she woke up, Someone had rescued her from the scene of the accident and uh, had brought her to a room. And what she uh, began to realize was that she was in some kind of a bunker. This doesn't sound good, right? This isn't how you'd want to wake up from a car accident. And, uh, and she begins to realize that she's in this man's sort of survival bunker that he's been outfitting for years. And the, the deal is that something terrible has happened in the world right around the time of her accident. And this man saved her life by bringing her to his bunker, which is fully stocked and okay for potentially years. And he says, I, you can live here. You can live here with me. I will take care of you. I will protect you. Uh, but the entire movie is about this young woman trying to figure out, should I really be in here? Is this person really here to protect me and to help me and to care for me? Can I trust the things that they're saying to me? Or am I a prisoner? And is this person my enemy? And she sees signs throughout the entire film that something has really gone on outside. Something really is going on out there. Things really aren't going well for people outside the bunker. But again, can I trust this person? And it's such a fascinating sort of journey to go on when you watch this movie. It's also terrifying. So if you don't want to get scared, don't watch it. But it's a fascinating thing to go upon on this journey as you watch this movie because you, you need to know the answer to this single question and no other question, which is, is this person good? Can they be trusted? Are they who they say they are? Or should I be suspicious of them? And this is how we all approach God. And this is why Exodus matters for every single one of us. It matters for the Israelites as much as it matters for the Egyptians. It matters for Moses just as much as it matters for the Pharaoh. By the time all of this will end, the Israelites will know who God is, and the Egyptians and the Pharaoh will know who God is. But if you don't know the Lord, not just who he is, but if you don't know him, then you cannot trust him. And if you cannot truly trust him, then just as we see with Adam and Eve, your life can be perfect, and your life can be wonderful, and your life can go exactly the way you want it to go, And it will still not go well. And you will still not choose him. 
You can know everything there is to know about God, but if you don't trust him, then even if your life turns out perfect, you still won't choose him and you still won't follow him because that's what we do. And we see it with Adam and Eve in the very beginning and we see it since then. So picking up in verse 6, we read the way the Pharaoh responds and we begin to see that this Pharaoh is really good at knowing how to respond in this situation. And by good, I mean, well, if you want to be an enemy and an effective one, he's taking a good first step. Starting in verse 6, it says, The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle." Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So, pause right there for one second, uh, because we're going to read through a few other descriptions of what the Pharaoh is doing here. So the Pharaoh has gone around and he has now said, I will do the very thing that most slave masters do when the slaves begin to rise up, is he has said, or really try to respond and ask for any kind of favor or good treatment, he has said, I'm now going to punish you more harshly. I will respond to your every request with harsh punishment, and in doing that, I will break you. I will teach you as a people that you should never stand up to me or against me, and you can come on behalf of any God that you say you're coming on behalf of but I will not let up. And it's going to take a lot more than this. And so he does something that runs the risk of tearing these people apart, which is exactly what you do when a group of people wants to rebel against you, is you divide them. You tear them apart. And what is the most important place that you could fracture them is between them and their leader. So starting in verse 10, so the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as then there was straw, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? We'll stop right there again. So what's interesting that we read about here is as he punishes them, it's clearly evident that they had been given things to make bricks up till this point. And now he's saying, you don't get straw. You have to go find it yourselves. And what, it, what they do is this. It says they're scattered throughout Egypt. So what they're now forced to do is go out throughout all of Egypt basically showing all the Egyptians who would ask, why are they here? Why are they gathering up stubble? What are these people doing? I thought they were supposed to be out working, building things with bricks to where the story would begin to spread and people would begin to talk and go, nope, these Israelites thought for a second that they could have their way. And this is what Pharaoh has done to them. And so just as God is showing the Israelites and he's showing Moses who he is, Pharaoh is making every effort to show his people who he is and not to mess with him. And that these Israelites, let's all remember, let's all remember that they're just our slaves. And what ends up happening is the foremen come back to him without having done work like they could do it before, and they're beaten. So now the foremen, the people in charge of the slaves, the Israelites, the higher-ups, are now being beaten on behalf of 
uh, on, on, because of what Moses has done. And I wonder who they're going to get mad at for this. It would be reasonable to get mad at Pharaoh. It would be reasonable to get furious at Pharaoh. But if you've been living in slavery for hundreds and hundreds of years, you've learned one thing. Getting mad at the person enslaving you does nothing. Getting angry at them, getting furious with them, building a case against them, it gets you nowhere. So you put your head down, you work harder, and you blame the guy that came and made this problem to begin with. Starting in verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, but yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. This is what you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that bricks your daily task each day. Saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them. As they came out from the Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge you, and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is exactly what the Pharaoh wanted to have happen. The Israelites are frustrated and upset. They see Moses as the one who has brought this upon them, and they're, they're done. Let us just get back to work. We've now got more work to do. The Pharaoh's doing something here that uh, a lot of dictators tend to do, which is to sort of define reality, right? They get to just say what's happening, even if it's not what's happening. He says, you're lazy. You're lazy because you're asking to go into the desert. Clearly, you need more work to do. You're a lazy group of people. And by just speaking it that way, that's the reality because he's the boss. And it's up to him to say how things are. We see something happen here that is so crucial in any group of people who do truly want to know God, and it is this. What happens when you decide, I want to know God? What happens when you're God's people and he is uh, actually intervening in your life and in your situation, right? The most powerful God that there is, the only God, uh, this all-powerful, great and apparently loving God, you're on his team. He's on your team. Wouldn't things get better? What happens when they don't? What happens when things get worse instead of getting better? Because this is not what Moses expected. He expected things to be difficult, but he didn't expect them to get worse for everybody before they would ever get better. Being a part of anything God is doing will result usually in harder, not easier especially in the short term. Many of us have lived that personally. We see what that's like. If God is indeed great, that means that he can do anything. He is physically capable of doing anything. There are no rules. There are no limits. He can do whatever he wants to. So that's easy. Let's hold on to that one. If God is good, if he really is a God who loves, then that means that he will be good to us. 
He'll be gentle with us and loving with us and compassionate for us. So you combine those two. Well, that's easy. We have the most powerful God that there ever could be loving us, saying, I want to make sure that things are good. Why does it not feel that way? Much of the time. The Israelites are going, this God is who you say he is. Why are things harder? Why are they not better? We read verses like uh, Romans 8, 28 in the New Testament that says that um, all things work together for the good of those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. And we go, really? Really? Uh, is that how it's ever felt for me a single full day if I'm following God? That all things are simply working out for good, that everything's good, that things are so good all the time, that this great, powerful God who loves me is actually doing things that are good. This is something that has to be wrestled with throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, this idea that apparently God is doing the right thing, but things are harder than maybe they even were before. So what does that tell us about God? What does it mean to say, I trust that God is doing the right thing and that all will work out for good, but it doesn't feel that way right now? How do I reconcile that? How do I live that way? How do I embrace that thing? Think about it like this, because I don't think that this is that much different from being part of a family. If you could ensure, if you could ensure somehow that your children or let's say that your parents, that everything could go really perfectly well for them. If you could ensure that, if you had an opportunity to just know somehow that you can make decisions or make a decision and everything will go well for them, like by their standard well, okay, that's it, it's easy, this one's simple, that it would go well for them moving forward. But that came at the cost of only one thing, they can't be a part of your family anymore what would you choose? If you're a child who, let's say, is caring for a parent, if you're a parent who's caring for a child, and you recognize how much you want them to just be happy, and you want life to go well, but how much you fundamentally are a part of one another's lives because you're the same family. Uh, there's a film I saw once uh, a while ago called Cinderella Man um, about a family that was living during the Depression, and they had to make this difficult decision of do we give our children to other family members who can better care for them? And it was the most painful thing to watch because so many people faced that decision and face that decision all the time right now in the world in which we live. And the reason that's such a hard decision is because as much as we want to say, I want them to be happy and to be well off, we also say, but they're a part of my family. I can't let them go. I can't give them up, right? And this is what we often want of God is we say, I want things to go my way, but... Um, not at the but 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 even at the cost, even at the cost of maybe the relationship God that you have with me, because I want this thing and I want things to go a certain way better than that. So if you could, would you make that decision? If you're a parent, if you're caring for your parents, I know their lives going to be great, but it's going to be over there, and we're never going to see each other again, and we're not going to be part of lives anymore together. We have a hard time understanding how. God can't work out his own perfect version of things that accomplishes everything that we want and that everything that he wants, right? He should be able to do that. God should be able to just make it all work. He's God. It's simple. 
One of the most valuable things about the Bible, and this is especially clear here, is that we get to see the big picture of things, and we get to see the reasons why, right? We get to see the things going on behind the scenes. We get to know where the story's going to go and what is going to happen, and we get to see even just, just a glimpse of what God's actually going to accomplish and what's happening. We want him to come up with a way to do things that avoids our pain, and we tell ourselves that this should be possible for God. But it's not about what's possible with God. And this is the key to understanding how this all works. It is about what's possible with people. Because this involves all of us. This is a planet full of people. And God is desiring to communicate who he is to these people. And because people work a certain way. And because the world works a certain way. Because we are relational and we are loving and we are connected. There is so much tied up in that. That the limit isn't what God can do. What he can perfectly plan out and orchestrate. The limit is how do people work and how will it work? Why is God going to such great lengths? To make himself known with a nation and a group of people and enslaver, all those different things, because these are the things that are required for people to actually be impacted and understand and be changed in a way that means something, because he has created us to be relational people. There's so many examples of this, of the way that we work, and we embrace them and we accept them and we say that's just the way it works, but we don't recognize that it all works a certain way. Today's Mother's Day, and we're celebrating mothers and talking about motherhood. Mothers are a vehicle. This is not, not, doesn't sound so romantic, but stay with me. Mothers are the vehicle, well, this kind of is, by which God gives us life, right? God says, this is how life is going to come. It will physically be created, it seems, and, and each one of us will be knit together within someone's, inside of someone's womb, and they will give us life. That is the way that I choose to do that. People giving life to people, giving birth to people. And he has given a natural way for us to both be knitted together like this, but also to be brought up in the world because we're meant to be nurtured by these people. We're meant to be raised by these people. A human being raised by other humans because we are relational, because we are in relationships with each other constantly, because our God is relational. This is the way that it works. But he chose to create finite and physical and relational beings. Mothers are the way we learn about the world. They're the way we learn about life itself, so much of it, and about who we are in the world and in life and what that looks like. No word sums up the role of a mother more than the word care. Because that is what, that is what we think. We think mothers do this. They care, right? Even if no one else cares, will they care? Even if I don't like how they care, even if I'm not sure I agree with the way that they care, a mother is synonymous with care. Not just emotionally caring, but physically caring. Mothering takes so much work, and at times it feels like, how is there not a better way for this to happen, for a person to become a great person then for it to depend, mothers, you often feel like on me, right, so much. I know as a father, I feel like that so often. People require things in order to actually be people. And we see this played out in the Bible again and again. They need to see 
God for who he is, and they need to see exactly who they are and where they fit in with his creation. This isn't going to happen with everyone just having a farm and some kids and things working out perfectly every day. It just will not. We will not see who we are in our Father, even in paradise, even in everything working perfectly. In fact, the truth of what we recognize, even though we hate to admit it, is that we see God more when it is difficult. We depend upon him more when it is difficult. We understand better the way things truly are when it is painful than even often in the times that are good. Things need to happen. Rulers need to be challenged. Plagues need to come. People need to cry out. Moses needs to take the detour. Because our God is good, And so he is going to do the very best things, but he is also great. And so he is going to orchestrate things in a way that this can happen. And if we are honest, and I say this real, if really, sincerely, if we are honest, I think that any person who is reasonably self-aware would would usually admit when they're being the most honest that if they could often have a choice between having more of God or having things more easily work out or having the things that God gives This is one of the most convicting things when you even talk about the idea of God. I know how much I love the good things that God can give me. I know how prone I am to love those things more than God himself. And so we recognize why things are the way that they are, why it works out the way it is, and why we trust God when he says it will work together for good. For who? For those who love God. Why? Because this is about us knowing him more. It's not about something other than that. It's about that, not alone. We don't really want to know our place in all of this as much as we just want a reasonably decent place in all of this and to be left alone. And God says no. He says no. I won't leave you alone. Because what we're going to see about the Israelites is in the end, there are going to be points when they say, I wish you had just left us alone. I wish you had just left us there. I wish you had just left us in in our slavery and our bondage. That may have been better than this, than following you and what that entails. Why do things get worse often before they get better? Because God is at work and because being in the family is about more than just having a good day tomorrow. There's nothing worse that we can tell someone who doesn't know Jesus than that becoming a Christian will solve all their problems, that it will make their life easier and better because they will soon find out that what that even means isn't the same as what it used to mean. Worse before better doesn't mean that God isn't working, and it doesn't mean that God isn't good, and it doesn't mean that God isn't great. There's a word that's used throughout the passage that we just read. It's a root word, a Hebrew root, and and it's used by a few different people a few different ways. Pharaoh uses this word when he says, work and slave away. He says, work for me, work for me. And the same word is used when when Moses says that the people could go and worship God. The root of that word is the same root. Work and worship and service are all the same word here. Why does that matter? Because Pharaoh and God are competing, again, don't, don't compete with him, right? They're competing for people's worship. Pharaoh says, these people will serve me. And God says, no, these people will serve me. But it's all the same, whether it's work, whether it's service, slavery, bondage, whether it's worship, it means having to give your, or giving yourself. 
So let's go to chapter 6, because I want to look at a part of chapter 6 before we wrap up this morning. As we ask this question, you know, who is Israel's master, really? To whom do they belong? Who will they worship? Who will they serve? Chapter 6, verse 1 says this, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord." Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is where we begin to see the people starting to say, I don't think this is such a good idea. We just want to go back to our work. And they begin to ignore the things that Moses is telling them, ignore the things that God is saying through Moses. God is being very clear. I'm the very same God of the God of their forefathers who has promised them all these things, and I will make good on my promise and on my word. You see, because things have gotten worse before they've gotten better, the people have begun to wonder, um, is any of this really worth it? And they've clearly decided, no, it's not. You see, it's one thing uh, when you're in slavery and bondage to have a smooth transition out of it. It's one thing to say, what's that? I could wake up tomorrow and be free. Yes, I'd choose that. I'd like that. Sure, why not? But when things get worse before they get better, people begin to rethink bondage. People begin to rethink slavery. And all of a sudden, it doesn't look like it looked the day before. Or they're reminded of why they didn't get out of it before. Why they didn't all bind together, rise up, and fight their way out. Throughout the Exodus, we're going to be confronted with this idea that the people could stay where they are. That they could live in bondage, because at least that's what they know. Or they could trust that God would free them, even if that doesn't seem possible. We can't even really imagine what it's like for these people who have at this point lived their entire lives in slavery, and their parents lived their whole lives in slavery, and probably their parents lived their whole lives in slavery as well. The generation after generation of people have known nothing but the bondage that they are in, and when God comes to them through Moses and says, you can be freed, and it gets harder before it gets better, Moses experiences this. What was the thing Moses was most afraid of? He was most afraid that the Israelites wouldn't believe him, that Pharaoh wouldn't believe him. Turns out that's not the worst thing that could happen, is it? 
Turns out one of the worst things that can happen is that Pharaoh could divide Moses and his people, a place he's already been to before in his life. They want a smooth transition out of one life to another, which is understandable. They don't want things to be this hard. This is where we see that it's been made clear to Pharaoh that the God of his enslaved people are coming for them to rescue them, and he is dismissive of God and chooses to respond with cruelty. His, his cruelty, this is important. We see here that it's not just a response to plagues, is it? That God hasn't done a single thing to Pharaoh to make his life or the Egyptians' life difficult, and yet what do we see out of Pharaoh's heart? We see cruelty. We see cruelty, we see evil, and we see a person who is saying, I will oppose this God no matter what. And it says that the people did not listen, and the reason they did not listen is so sad. In verse 9, it says, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. These words, broken spirit, it means despondent. It means they were simply too discouraged by being in slavery to listen. They were too beaten down to listen, to hear. They were too discouraged to hope that things could be different and that things could be better. That's what kept them from it. It doesn't say that it was anger, rage, resentment. It says they are too beaten down as a people to actually believe that God can do what he says he's going to do. And as we've said before, for so many, when we look at God's word and we read the things that he says about himself, the hardest part for us to believe about that are the things that require hope. The things that require hope. We say, I don't know if I can believe in that. I don't think that's really going to happen. I don't think God can really do that or redeem that or restore that thing. And that without a living hope, that we begin to be despondent. Because all we've ever known is bondage for many of us. This is something that just happens in slavery, and it is utterly devastating because slavery can break not just the bodies of people, but it can break the will of people. And this is what Pharaoh has gotten very good at doing, and his predecessor was good at doing as well. Throughout the rest of the Bible, we see this experience of the Israelites compared to enslavement and sin. We see this again and again. What it is to be enslaved... What leads up to this? We see so many parallels between here in Exodus and what happens um, even with Jesus setting us free from sin. We see uh, the very thing that is meant to bring them life, which is bringing them into Egypt during a famine, ends up leading to what? To slavery. Just as the very thing that is, that is meant to bring them life, which is God's law and God's command and his rule, his way to live, ends up leading the people into a place where they begin to become slaves to that thing. And God could do one of two things. He could choose to let them stay there. He could say, I'll leave you in this. Or he could say, I'll redeem you out of it. He can do that in Egypt, and he can do that as people have for generations since then made themselves, allow themselves to become slaves to the law and slaves to sin and to flesh. He can say, I'll leave you there. Or he can be, like we said last week, a God who rescues 
And so as he is a God who rescues and he brings about the good news of the fact that I will redeem you, I will make good on my promises, the people can be beaten down so much by the sin that they have lived in, by the slavery that they've been living in, in this case, not sin, but slavery here. But we see this. We see this as we see what slavery really looks like for so many. That they can be so beaten down by that, that they can be so discouraged by it, and that their wills can even be broken by it, that when they hear the news of hope and they hear about Jesus, that they can say, no, I don't think so. That when they hear that you can actually follow God, and even though every other person or so many other people would say, yeah, I can give you a recipe for a really boring, difficult life full of rules that uh, if you're a consenting adult who knows how to live your life, you certainly don't need beyond a certain age, that's called being a Christian and that's called following Jesus. Then instead that you could look at that and you could say, or that's true freedom. Or that is true freedom. Because why are we even here? We are here to know God. And how does he bring us to know about about him, to know him? He does all this stuff. He allows all these things to happen. And we have the benefit of looking at his word in the the Israelites and the Egyptians and seeing his hand moving through these things. Seeing him begin to allow things to play out in a way that people will know him and know who he is. But we have to choose, will we see it? And when we begin to follow him or we begin to trust him or we give him a little bit and things get worse before they seem to get better, what do we do? Do we say, I will trust and I will hope that this is a God who does what he promises he's going to do? Are we and can we be a people of hope? The Israelites' strength was tied to one thing. It was tied to their ability to hope in God, to trust in God. It wasn't even tied to their obedience to all the rules. It was tied to their ability to hope in God and to trust in God. And he shows them miraculously again and again and again. Listen, if you hope in me and trust in in me, then some pretty crazy stuff's going to happen and you're going to be okay. You won't be able to reason through all of it. You won't be able to make sense of all of it. It would never be the thing that you thought I was going to do or was going to happen. But if you simply hope and trust in me, you will be okay. Because above all else, you will know me. We can know with absolute certainty. You can know today, I know God. You can say, I I want him. I want to follow him. I trust him and I hope in him. You You can do that today. You may have walked in here having already done it, and you can continue to do that today. And even if things get worse, even if things get harder moving forward, even if tomorrow isn't as good as today even was, but it's worse, that doesn't mean that you don't know God. That doesn't mean that things will not work out for the good in the end, and that doesn't mean that God isn't in it. As we spend a little bit of time in worship and as we reflect on this, I think to simply reflect on the fact again that we have a God who redeems and rescues his people. And last week, we looked at what it is when that message is even beginning to be formed, right? That this is a God who does these things. Now we're looking at what happens when the rubber meets the road, when when the wheels start to turn and things start to happen. And we recognize that, is it possible that he can still be a God who rescues and redeems and restores his people, a God of hope, a God that we can trust in? Is it possible that he really is a God who is as great as he says he is? And that he really is a God who loves us as much as he says he does. Is it possible that all those things can be true even when things get worse before they get better? His word says that it is. If we believe that, that's everything to us. This is why the most important thing we can take from Exodus is who God is. It's not even who we are. It's who he is. Is he all these things he says about himself? Yes, he is. What does that mean? It means everything to us. That's why we worship, that's why we sing, that's why we pray, that's why we're here, because of who he is, not even because of who we are.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the ways in which you choose to move and work in the world. They are not the ways that we would choose because we don't know what you know. God, we are so grateful for the fact that you are a God who rescues his people. Father, we confess that um, we are prone to want the gifts that you give us more than you, that we are prone to want life to go well. Who wouldn't? But even at the cost of knowing you more. And that the true mark of a disciple um, is somebody who is increasing in their desire to ultimately want you more than all the other good things that can come. To want to be one of your people, even if that means that things are difficult and harder than they were yesterday, Father. That is our prayer this morning, that we would be people who want you in a sincere way. It feels oftentimes like we don't even know how to have the right motives in approaching you. And so we pray that as we reflect on Exodus and what you do for your people, that we see that literally everyone is going to doubt you. Everyone is going to question what you're doing, God. That you are still a God who, who rescues his people and that you are a God who will, who will redeem them and give them hope, Lord. We praise you for that. We worship you because of that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. There's two ways to take um, this idea of things getting harder before they get better. There's kind of the idealistic way, and then there's sort of the cynical way. And there are those of us who are prone to just think everything is, is flowers and roses. And uh, for us, the reminder is really uh, that things are often harder before they get better. And that we have to be able to say that. God didn't want his people to ignore what was going on. He didn't want them to put their heads in the sand and pretend like it wasn't happening. And we often, some of us need to work on just being able to acknowledge what really is going on. Uh, because we can't say, blessed be your name, and truly mean it if we're not even able to be honest about how difficult sometimes life is. And for those who um, have no problem saying how difficult life is and how hard things are, but have a difficult time seeing God in that and hoping, and then for us, we have to find a way to encourage one another to have hope and to be able to say, blessed be your name, um, to the God who gives and takes away because we know that he is great and that he is good. Amen? Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Remember, ladies, grab something on your way out and uh, have a great Mother's Day.